Thank you, Brother Scott. Great job. Take your Bibles, turn with me this evening to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We have for the last 15 weeks I've been looking at knowing what I believe. And this, of course, could go on for many more weeks, but I feel we've covered many of the basics. Remember, we've looked at the Bible, we looked at Jesus, we looked at the Holy Spirit, salvation, assurance, the church, baptism, the Lord's Supper, angels and demons. And I really don't know of a better place to end this series than by looking at what we believe about missions and evangelism. There are, of course, any number of passages that could be used to support the Christian's call to missions and evangelism, but perhaps the most recognizable is that which we know as the Great Commission found in Matthew chapter 28, <clears throat> beginning in verse number 18. Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even the end of the age. Amen. Tonight I don't want to just bring you another message on Matthew chapter 28. We break down the, the words of this particular passage and so many people seem to dwell on the first word of uh, chapter 19, uh, verse 19, which is go, which is not the central command of this verse. The central command is that we make disciples, make disciples of all nations. The going is implied that all who are truly saved Know the Lord Jesus Christ will have a desire to share their faith. In my mind, at least, missions and evangelism are inseparably linked. But I do want to take just a moment to talk about each one of them before we begin the study tonight. For our study tonight, I want us to understand evangelism as our faithfulness to carry out the Great Commission in our corner of the world. Evangelism is our faithfulness to carry out the Great Commission in our corner of the world. According to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I really want you to look at is the second part of that verse where it says, And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The disciples were commanded to begin where they were and to reach out in ever-widening circles to the ends of the earth. That command still stands for us today. I don't want to take time this evening trying to convince you that we are to carry out the Great Commission. I believe that is a given that we are given that responsibility. 
If we see evangelism as our response in carrying out the Great Commission locally, then missions would be our response to carrying out the Great Commission globally. When we in the West think of missions, we tend to divide it into two great waves of influence. The first, of course, broke out in the first century as the apostles themselves obeyed the Great Commission. This wave ultimately spread through the Jewish and pagan communities of the Roman Empire into the Mediterranean world, into much of what is southern Europe and even parts of Africa with the message of the gospel. The second wave of missions didn't happen for a long time after that. The second wave of mission endeavors is often dated from William Carey's pioneer work in the 18th century, reaching out to India. It continued as a flood in the 19th and 20th century as missions reached through the colonies of the great European powers. Officially, that era ended with the outbreak of World War II. The world has yet to see what, our, what the mission endeavor of the 21st century will be. Our church has always been a mission-minded church, but I think we really started to get serious about missions when we started the Faith Promise Missionary Giving in 1990. I believe that we can attribute whatever growth we have experienced both spiritually and numerically to the blessings of faithfulness to follow God in the area of missions. Paul Bortwick shares some pretty convicting thoughts in his book, A Mind for Missions. He says that every Christian is faced with the decision to be a worldly Christian or a world Christian. A worldly Christian is one who accepts the basic message of salvation, but whose lifestyles, priorities, concerns are molded by self-centered preoccupation. The selfish spirit of our age leads the worldly Christian to look to God in the Bible primarily for personal fulfillment. The worldly Christian looks to Scripture for personal blessings, prays mostly for immediate and personal needs, and sees the Christian faith as a way to get God on his or her side. I really didn't like that very much. I saw myself in that too much. On the other hand, the world Christian breaks the mold of a self-centered way of thinking. A world Christian understands that Jesus calls us to deny ourselves so that we might respond to a world of greater need beyond ourselves. Becoming a world or a worldly Christian is a choice we all face, and I believe part of that choice is revealed in how we respond to missions and evangelism. There are seven things that Scripture says with respect to the gospel of Jesus Christ, each of which I think has a bearing 
on our responsibility to share it with others, whether in the context of missions or evangelism. The first one is that it is simple. It is simple. Luke chapter 18, verse 17 says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. This verse, of course, speaks to the fact that even a child can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. But it also speaks to the fact that anyone can master enough of the gospel to share their faith. One of the most common excuses that one hears from those who are not actively involved in sharing their faith is that they simply don't feel qualified. They say things like, well, I just don't know enough scripture, or I'd rather leave that to someone who knows more Bible than me, or I'm afraid that they will ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. Quite simply, uh, people ask me questions that I don't know the answer to all the time. It really shouldn't be that frightening. A clear reading of Scripture teaches us that we are called to share, and it is so simple that a child can even understand and share it. Jesus taught the gospel was so simple that even a child could receive it. If you take a look at the early disciples for just a moment, none of the twelve had a theological education. Peter was a fisherman. I doubt very seriously if he had much, if any, formal education at all. Matthew was a tax collector. He was no biblical scholar. They all shared simply what they knew to be true, that Jesus was the Christ, he was the son of the living God, and all who asked him for forgiveness would receive it and be given eternal life. We can go anywhere in the world today, and we can find people whose theological understanding is very limited, but they are people with an authentic faith in Jesus, and in whose lives you can see that they have been visibly changed. They may not be able to discuss the immutability of God or define the finer nuances of his sovereignty, but they are like the blind man that Jesus healed. They can say, I was once blind, but now I see. That's how simple the gospel is. The second thing, and this is a very unpopular thing in our day, it is exclusive. <clears throat> There is no other way to gain access to God and eternal life than through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus claims to be the only way to heaven. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The apostle Paul restated that exclusive claim and Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 when he said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. 
The spirit of our age, often called postmodernism, tells us that truth is contextual and that all truths are equal in worth. In fact, postmodernists, that is pretty much anybody in our world today who is not saved, are appalled by the audacity of anyone to say that there is only one truth and there is only one way. The exclusivity of the gospel may not be popular, but it's true. The third thing that we see is that it is timeless. The wonderful thing about Scripture is it is always appropriate, always able to be applied to people's lives. It is timeless and changeless and a applicable to all people at all places at any time. Matthew 24:14 says in this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Jesus tells us to take his gospel to all nations, to all places, to the uttermost parts of the world, and a gospel which is taken to all nations to the end of the earth, a gospel which is Apple to all people in all places at any time. It is timeless. It is also demanding. Demanding. It is not an easy message. To say that it is a simple message does not mean that it is an easy message. It is easy to understand. But sometimes it is difficult to obey. It is one which demands everything from those who accept it. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? A faith that demands nothing is neither biblical nor saving faith. The gospel is challenging when it is understood. It demands everything from us. And it promises us that we will receive Rewards, but not necessarily in this life, but in the life to come. It is also, number five, enlightening. Part and parcel of the gospel is to teach others to obey all that Christ commanded. That's part of what we read in Matthew chapter 28. Verse 19 says, go therefore and make disciples. That really is the primary command of that verse. Make disciples. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not call us to get decisions. He called us to make disciples. Number six, it is transforming. If it is received and 
thoroughly received, and it thoroughly transforms those who believe. It is life-changing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The person who has truly accepted Christ is a new person. All things have passed away. All things have become new. Jesus tells us that by their fruits we shall know them. And James tells us that faith without evidence of works, authenticating works, is not real faith. The reality is, if you're saved, there will be a metamorphosis in your life. That's a, such a neat word if you really stop to consider. He tells us that true faith is not from the outside in. You start by cleaning up the outside, and then as time passes, you change the inside. It comes from the inside out. A transformation that will leave you changed. If there is no change, there is no salvation. Jesus says that we have to bear fruit. Fruit as evidence of the fact that we are truly saved. And number seven and last, <clears throat> it is extended. Those who truly accept Christ will want to be busy about sharing the gospel with others. As I read earlier, Acts 1.8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We have been given a stewardship. <clears throat> We've got a lot of things that we are stewards over in life. We we are given certain assets and material possessions, but primarily we are stewards of the gospel. Something that the Bible tells us that we'll, we will be held accountable for. That one day we will stand before the Lord and give an account. So, <clears throat> what kind of witness are you? When God calls you into account someday... For the stewardship of the gospel, when he asks you to tell him how you handle the most precious and powerful gift he ever placed in the hands of a human, what are you going to say? What would you say to him if you were to call you into account today? And what will you do about his call in your life to share the good news of his kingdom? I'm going to end the message today in a little bit different fashion because it works so well for me to tell you about this particular program and ask for your approval because it fits so well with the message. The men's ministry has presented a proposal. I don't know where the idea ultimately originated. I think Carmen Lane may be held accountable, I'm not sure, but uh, it's a proposal to have what I would call an outreach banquet. It's to invite individuals 
within our community who may be having a difficult time at Christmas to a banquet on December the 15th in our Family Life Center. It would consist of a free meal in the Family Life Center, which we would prepare for them. Christmas presents for all the children to take home. A special performance by the choir of their Christmas musical. A gospel presentation for all those in attendance. Prepackaged Christmas meals for each family to take home. A box prepared for each family for Christmas. Of course, a Bible and some gospel literature <coughs> with, get, with those gifts. And it is an, an exciting opportunity for us to minister to the needs of our community during a very special time of year. The way the families will be selected is from an annual list that's generated by the public schools. They're working on that list right now. They have the specifics for each child's needs, what their desires for Christmas are. This is not something entirely new. Uh, many of our Sunday school classes and church members have been adopting families over the last few years at Christmas. Uh, this really is just an effort to try to consolidate those efforts into one special night for a select group of families. Now, the men's ministry is going to do the planning and the organizing, but obviously they're going to need a small army of volunteers throughout that process. It's an opportunity to actually put that desire to reach out to individuals with the gospel of Jesus in a practical way and a way in which we can share the truth of the gospel because we'll be asking families within the church to adopt one or more families on the list as we lead up to that event. Uh, that's how the Christmas presents will be generated for the, for the children. Uh, and then <clears throat> there will be the idea of preparing for them a Christmas meal that they can take home, which I mentioned a moment ago. We estimate that the cost of that would be about $50 per family. Assuming that 50 families are invited to that event, that means about $2,500. And I want to... Uh, call us into a business meeting for just a moment and I want to present to you the idea that we take that project on and that we allocate to that um, dinner uh, $3,000 a special allocation be $2,500 for the meals that I just talked about plus $500 toward the cost of the dinner uh, this is not a part of the 2012 budget and that's why we'll would be presenting for your approval at this point. Anybody have a question at this point? You probably never had a chance to ask a question during a sermon, so here you go. I keep telling people who lead Sunday school classes that the quickest way I know to shut people up is ask them if they got a question. It works for me every time. Every time I ask them, got a question? No, 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 no. Really, any questions at all? There's no such thing as a bad question, if you've got a question. We're talking about a $3,000 allocation, $2,500 for the uh, taking care of the meals, 
for the family and then $500 toward that dinner or the banquet itself. Okay, I made the proposal. Would somebody like to put it in the form of a motion for me? Did I see something? Pete, did you do that? Okay. Well, Pete's now held responsible for making the motion. If it goes badly, Pete, I'll be looking for you. We've got a motion. Do we have a second? Got a motion and a second. All those in favor, raise your right hand. All those not in favor, raise your right hand. Motion passed. Okay. This is a wonderful way to put in practice what we've been talking about, reaching out to our community. Now, back to our service. Let's stand together. We'll give an opportunity for anyone who might be here that needs to make any kind of decision. We want to give that opportunity right now. And so let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for such an agreeable group of people. It's always a joy to work with them and serve them. And they really do have a giving heart when other people are involved. And thank you, Lord, for what you do for us. Thank you for the message uh, of your word. And we thank you that you never give up on us and you always continue to work and, and uh, move us uh, toward, toward the individual that we should be help us as we grow in our christian faith lord lord if there are those who need to make decisions i pray that you give them the strength to do that right now we ask it in jesus name amen